We trust you to enlighten the eyes of our understanding that we may grow, that we may be conformed more and more to the image of Christ. Father, we'll give you praise and honor and glory for everything that's done. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. You may be seated. We want to continue on the series that we've been teaching for the last several weeks, Healing Belongs to Us, and we're using two text scriptures for this series, Matthew 8, 16, and Isaiah 53, verse 4. Matthew 8, 16, when the evening was come, they brought unto him many that were possessed with devils, and he cast out the spirits with his word, and healed all that were sick, that it might be fulfilled which was spoken by Isaiah the prophet saying himself took our infirmities and bare our sicknesses. Now Matthew says that he's quoting Isaiah. If you look at Isaiah, the closest thing that you can find to this is Isaiah chapter 53, verse 4, which says, Surely he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows, yet we did esteem him stricken, smitten of God, and afflicted. Notice that word griefs. This word is used 24 times in the Old Testament. 20 times it's translated sickness. Twice in Jeremiah it's translated grief. And then here in Isaiah, twice it's used here, both in verse 4 and verse 10. Verse 10 says, he has put into grief in the, uh, in the King James. But in the literal translation, for example, Isaac Lesser's translation, which is the only translation of the Old Testament that the Orthodox Jews recognize, it says in Lesser's translation that he has made him sick. He's talking about the price or the substitutionary work of Jesus that was accomplished for us. And so in those two places, Isaiah 53, verse 4, and then again in verse 10, this word sickness, which would be, should be translated sickness, is identified by the Hebrew language. Verse 5 tells us the finished work of Jesus, tells us the, the Messiah's operation, substitutionary work for, our, for us and on our behalf. He was wounded for our transgressions. He was bruised for our iniquities. The chastisement of our peace was upon him, and with his stripes we are healed. With his stripes we are healed. Folks, Jesus shed blood, shed his own blood to accomplish physical, uh, physical healing, divine healing and health for us, just as much as he shed his blood for the, for the sins of man. Surely he has borne our griefs. Surely he has borne our sins. That's what Isaiah is, that's what Matthew is saying about Isaiah's prophecy. He healed all that were sick that it might be fulfilled, which was spoken by Isaiah the prophet, saying himself took our infirmities and bare our sicknesses. Now, folks, there are numerous places in the Bible scriptures that tell us what God's plan and purpose is. For example, in Romans chapter 1, verse 16, 
Paul says, I'm not ashamed of the gospel of Christ, for it, the gospel, the good news, is the power of God unto salvation. This word salvation is an all-inclusive term. It means to rescue, it means to deliver, it means to make safe, to make sound, it means to heal. So the gospel of Jesus, the good news of Jesus' finished work, substitutionary work, is the means of obtaining rescue, deliverance, safety, soundness, and healing or health. Now look with me also in Psalm 107. Psalm 107, starting in verse 17. It says, Fools because of their transgression and because of their iniquities are afflicted. Their soul abhorreth all manner of me, and they draw near unto the gates of death. Then they cry unto the Lord for their, in their trouble, and, save, and he saveth them out of their distresses. He sent his word and healed them, and delivered them from their destructions. Now notice in verse 20, he sent his word and healed them. The word of God is intended to be the, the means of obtaining divine health for the physical body. He sent his word and healed them. Now, folks, we're accustomed to people putting other emphasis or a greater emphasis on other ways to receive their healing. For example, many people are trying to get somebody to pray for them and they're looking for prayer to be the means for their healing. It didn't say he sent his prayer. He sent prayer to mankind to heal them. He says that he sent his word. The word of God is the means and the measure and the method for the Christian to obtain divine health. I've seen over the years particularly after we started healing school on Sunday night, I've seen over the years people come from the outside, outside of our church, I mean, and they'll come and they just want to get prayed for. They're just waiting for the end of the service where they can come up and have somebody or ask me to pray for them. And they really didn't want to hear anything. They didn't have any foundation of the word to base their prayer on they just want a quick fix and go on about their lives and very rarely do those people receive anything F.F. Bosworth said in his book Christ the Healer one of the best things that's ever been written about the subject of divine health he made a statement about this verse Psalm 107 verse 20 he sent his word and healed them. He said many people, and maybe I ought to start off and uh, preclude this with some information about his ministry. F.F. Bosworth was a man that was used by God in a great way through teaching the word. And as he taught the word over a period of time, they had testimonies of almost 225,000 people that were healed, not through the laying on of hands, 
but were healed just simply by hearing the word. Gaining an, uh, an understanding of the truth of God's word and the will of God to heal and applying it on their own by making a prayer of faith to God and receiving their healing. And he said this. He said that many people that come up for prayer would be better served if they came up and said to Brother Bonsworth, teach us the word so that we can receive our healing. Prayer is like breathing. Feeding on the word is like eating. Now both are pretty important, don't you think? He sent his word and healed them and delivered them from their destruction. He sent his word and healed them. Now in Luke chapter 5, we've got an example of an incident of Jesus' healing ministry. Starting in verse 12. And it came to pass when he was in a certain city, behold a man full of leprosy, who seeing Jesus fell on his face and besought him, saying, Lord, if thou wilt, thou, can me, thou canst make me clean. And he put forth his hand and touched him, saying, I will be thou clean. And immediately the leprosy departed from him. And he charged him to tell no man, but go and show himself to the priest and offer for thy cleansing, according as Moses commanded, for a testimony unto them. But so much the more went there a fame abroad of him, and great multitudes came together, now notice this, to hear and to be healed by him of their infirmities. They came to hear and to be healed. Now, folks, when Luke wrote this gospel, inspired by the Holy Ghost, Matthew's gospel was already out, and Mark's gospel was already out. And so when Luke begins to write these things, or as he's prompted by the Holy Spirit to write these things, he's the only one that makes a, a, a statement of, of this to hear and be healed. Now, why would the Holy Ghost impress him to do it and nobody else? Why would the Holy Ghost impress Luke to say that they came to hear and to be healed rather than just say they came to be healed. Remember Jesus said in Mark chapter 4. He gave us the sower soweth the word. Or the parable of the sower sowing the word. And that word goes into the different parts of the ground. That seed springs up. And works effectively in the ground that, that takes care of it, the ground that protects the seed after it's sown, waters it and protects it. God intended for his people to be healed by the word. Now he's provided things, other means and operations of the Holy Spirit for people that are outside the church, outside of the family of God to show his love and his concern and his will for their lives. Luke says it again in chapter 6. 
he uses the same phrase again, verse 17. And he came down with them and stood in the plain and the company of his disciples. And a great multitude of people out of all Judea and Jerusalem and from the seacoast of Tyre and Sidon which came to hear him and to be healed of their diseases. And they that were vexed with unclean spirits, and they were healed. And the whole multitude sought to touch him, for there went out virtue of him, out of him, and healed them all. Here's that phrase again. They came to hear and to be healed. They came to hear and to be healed. Now, folks, things are a little different now than they were when Jesus was here on the earth operating in his earthly ministry. We know there were times where Jesus was stifled and prevented from doing healing works or healing miracles because of the unbelief of the cities. We know particularly in Luke chapter 4 and in Mark chapter 6 when Jesus went to his own hometown in Nazareth and it's, it says he could there do no mighty work. doesn't say he wouldn't. It says he couldn't. And he could there do no mighty work. Now, I know a lot of people don't like this being said because it cuts crossways with their idea of the sovereignty of God and Jesus' ability to do anything and everything according to the things, his, according to his own desires. But the Bible says without equivocation, that he could there do no mighty work. And he marveled because of their unbelief. He marveled because of their unbelief. Jesus' hometown of Nazareth, his childhood home, never is mentioned again in Jesus' ministry. He never went back to Nazareth to teach or to minister according to the gospel record. They never overcame their unbelief. And so the city, because they thought they knew something that precluded him from being the Messiah, they thought, because we know his parents, and of course they're talking about Joseph and Mary, because we know his parents, Jesus couldn't be the Messiah. But they didn't know everything they thought they knew, did they? In Jesus' ministry, there was nobody that was teaching against healing being God's will. There was nobody that was questioning the, the authority or power that he had over sickness and disease. You remember, I told you the story before about T.L. Osborne. T.L. Osborne was a man that revolutionized evangelistic operations, and he was having miracles all over the world in a staggering measure. And the things that were being done were unheard of and unknown. To most of the church world. He's the one that started praying for people in mass. Rather than 
praying for them one at a time. And since his crusades were attended by hundreds of thousands of people, you could well understand how you'd have to do something that was out of the ordinary. And he was the first one that prayed for everybody in mass and got healing results. Well, the Assembly of God organization invited him to one of their conventions. And they had, during the time that he was there, a question and answer session during one of the afternoon meetings. And so these evangelists and other ministers from all over the world questioned him. And really the biggest question they had was only one question, really. And they asked, why are you able to get results where we can't? And many in the the meeting were expecting, I'm sure, for him to say, well, I, I can't answer for why things are done the way they are or why God operates in some ways. But it didn't. He answered very succinctly. He said, if I can get you to a country before you do, then I can have miracles and God's will can be accomplished. But if I go into a place where you've already been, where you've told the people that God doesn't always heal. You've told the people that you can't count on it working every time. He said, then I can't get results. Now, folks, think about what that would mean. That means that the unbelief taught by much of the church concerning the will of God concerning the will of God to heal and concerning the way that God operates, that is so easily turned into or becomes a stronghold that creates the kind of unbelief that Jesus wasn't able to conquer in places like Nazareth when he was here in the earth. If you think about it, with that understanding, most of the book of Acts is talking about first-time places that the gospel's ever been. In Acts chapter 3, it tells us that Jesus, or rather the Holy Ghost, prompted a healing miracle to take place in the man at the beautiful gate of the temple. Now the Bible says that this man was laid daily at the beautiful gate of the temple, which means that Jesus probably passed by this guy at least on one occasion and maybe many more. And so it tells us that the Holy Ghost prompted Peter to minister healing to the guy. He said, Silver and gold have I none, but such as I have give I thee. In the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, rise and walk. And he reached out and got this guy by the hand and lifted him up. And the man leaped and walked, completely healed of this paralysis, whatever it was that caused him to be crippled. Peter ex explains to the crowd 
that this man was not healed, he specifically or specifies two things. Those two things that the church world mostly, or for the most part, dwells on now. He said, what makes you think that our own holiness or our own power has brought this man healing? Now, most of the church world says that Jesus did operate in, in the healing power of God, and he transferred that healing power of God to the disciples. But when the last apostle died, all that was done away with. So that most of the church world identifies or believes that the apostles had some power that the rest of the church doesn't have. Well, if that was the case, don't you think Peter would know? But Peter says specifically, what makes you think that our own power or our own holiness, we have made this man to walk? He says it's not that. It was the name of Jesus that caused the sealing miracle to take place. They're called into question, brought before the leaders, the Jewish leaders, and commanded not to preach or teach in the name of Jesus anymore. But the Holy Ghost played on the foundation of Jesus' ministry in Jerusalem. And the first miracle that takes place is a life-changing, jaw-dropping, healing miracle on this man, this crippled man. Now, there are other examples as well where the early church is operating in the power of God. But look with me over at Acts chapter 14. Here's one example that I think is worth looking at. This is Paul on his first missionary journey. The Jews begin persecuting him. They run him out of his first town. Acts 14, verse 6, they were aware of it and fled into Lystra and Derbe, cities of Lyconia, and unto the region that lieth round about. Now notice verse 7, and there they preached the gospel. We just looked at a few minutes ago, Romans chapter 1, verse 16, where Paul says, I'm not ashamed of the gospel of Christ, for it is the power of God unto salvation. Again, it's that all-inclusive term that means to rescue, deliver, make safe, make sound, and to heal. So Paul's gospel included healing. We see that, and we're, that truth is confirmed by the continuation of this story. Verse 8, And there sat a certain man at Lystra, impotent in his feet, being a cripple from his mother's womb, who had never walked. The same heard Paul speak, and steadfastly beholding, who steadfastly beholding him, and perceiving that he had faith to be healed, said with a loud voice, Stand upright on thy feet. And he leaped and walked. Now, if Paul wasn't preaching healing, then the man couldn't have found faith to be healed. Romans 10, 17 says, So then faith comes by hearing, 
and hearing by the word of God. So the gospel that Paul preached had to be a gospel of healing. First time he's ever been there, first time anybody's ever been there with the gospel. There's nobody around to talk about Paul's thorn in the flesh. There's nobody around saying that Jesus or God sometimes heals and sometimes he doesn't. There's nobody around to tell the people of the cities of Galatia that you can't ever tell what God's going to do. There's absolutely nobody that's preaching against the gospel of the power of the name of Jesus. Brother Hagen used to tell the story of a missions trip that people at Rama, students at Rama took one time to the Philippines. It was the first missions trip that they took together or took as a, a group from the school. And they went to the Philippines and from there they spread out, split up, and the people they were working with in the, in the Philippine Islands had different places for them to go rather than all of them stay together. And there was one little girl that came back. She didn't have any kind of ministry call on her. She didn't claim to have any special anything that would distinguish her or separate her from the crowd. But she came back and she gave the testimony to the rest of the school among others, there were others that had testimonies too. But she said this. She said, we went to an island or were taken to an island that had never received the gospel. They'd never heard anybody preach about Jesus. And she said, it was so easy to get people healed. It was like the name of Jesus. You just barely had to whisper the name of Jesus. And blind eyes were opened. Deaf ears were opened. And other Notable miracles took place. Now we hear stories like that and we think, why can't that happen here? Doesn't God want it to happen here? But we live in a place, live in a country, that our freedom of religion has done more to create doubt and planted doubt in the Christian's heart than it has done to set them free. Now you've got, here in America at least, you've got to try to talk people into being healed. They want to be healed, but very few are willing to do what it takes to gain a foundation, a solid foundation of his word in their hearts so that we're in a position to receive what God has for us. And again, we're so much of an instant society that we're looking for, or many people are looking for, somebody that's got some special healing ministry that can pray the prayer of faith for them so that they don't have to do any work. It takes effort to put yourself in a position to receive. You're going to have to overcome the questions that have been created 
by the teaching that we've heard before. Turn with me to Acts chapter 16. Acts chapter 16, verse 6. Now when they had gone throughout Phrygia and the region of Galatia, and were forbidden of the Holy Ghost to preach the word in Asia, after that they were come to Mysia, and assayed or attempted to go into Bithynia, but the Spirit suffered them not. And they, passing by Mysia, came down to Troas. Now, folks, this is giving us an insight into Paul's ministry and how he was expecting to be led by the Holy Ghost and where he goes. He didn't already have his itinerary set to go from point A to point B to point C. He's in a place where he's looking for God to direct them. And it says they were forbidden of the Holy Ghost to preach the word in Asia. The Holy Ghost wouldn't let them go into Asia. Now Asia turns out to be the Asia that's referred to here turns out to be the, the region where Ephesus is the chief city. And in just a few short years from this point in time that we're reading about in Acts 16, Paul will go to Ephesus and have the greatest ministry results that's recorded and kept for us as a record of the power of God. So it wasn't just a matter of that God didn't want him to go to Asia. He winds up going and doing great works for the kingdom of God. But timing is everything. It's not just a matter of going to the right place. You need to be at the right place at the right time. So if, they, if the Holy Ghost forbid them to preach the word in Asia, now that's a... a an interesting term or an interesting way to say that. How did the Holy Ghost forbid him to go? Well, if it was some kind of special sign or wonder that God gave them and the Holy Ghost didn't give us a record of it, then he's done us a disservice. This forbidden to speak or preach the word in Asia had to have been some kind of spiritual check or something on the inside that Paul and his company knew for sure that that wasn't what God wanted them to do. Verse 7 again, after they were come to Mysia, they assayed, the word assayed means attempted. They attempted to go into Bithynia, but the Spirit suffered them not. Here's another leading or witness of the Holy Ghost about what not to do. And they passing by Mysia came down to Troas. And a vision appeared to Paul in the night. And there stood a man of Macedonia and prayed him, saying, Come over to Macedonia and help us. And after he had seen the vision, immediately we endeavored to go into Macedonia, assuredly gathering that the Lord had called us for to preach the gospel unto them. Therefore, loosing from Troas, we came with a straight course to somewhere. And the next day in Neapolis, and from thence to Philippi, which is the chief city 
of that part of Macedonia and a colony, and we were there in the city abiding certain days. And on the Sabbath we went out of the city by a riverside where prayer was wont to be made. And we sat down and spake unto the women which resorted thither. And a certain woman named Lydia, a seller of purple in the city of Thyatira, which worshipped God, heard us, whose heart the Lord opened that she attended unto the things which were spoken of Paul. And when she was baptized in her household, she besought us, saying, If you had judged me to be faithful to the Lord, come into my house and abide there. And she constrained us. Folks, I want to point out something. Paul had a vision where he saw a man from Macedonia saying, Come over here and help us. They recognized the supernatural nature of that to such a degree that they followed it and concluded that the Holy Ghost was telling them that's where he wanted them to go. Did Paul ever meet this man in Macedonia that he saw in the vision? We have no record of it if he did. He saw a man in the vision saying, come to Macedonia and help us. When he got there, he found a woman who was open to the word. Now here's a situation where I don't have any answers for. If you're looking for me to tell you the answer, you have to look in another place. I don't understand why God would have given him a vision of a man in Macedonia and never led him to the man. But we understand, and it proves out, that they certainly followed the right leading of God and got to the place where they wanted him to be. And it came to pass, as we went to prayer, a certain damsel possessed with the spirit of divination met us, which brought her masters much gain by soothsaying. And the same followed Paul and us, and cried, saying, These men are the servants of the Most High God, which show unto us the way of salvation. And this she did many days. But Paul, being grieved, turned and said to the Spirit, I command thee in the name of Jesus Christ to come out of her. And he came out the same hour. And when her masters saw that the hope of their gains was gone, they caught Paul and Silas and drew them into the marketplace unto the rulers. And they brought them unto the magistrates, saying, These men, being Jews, do exceedingly trouble our city and teach customs which are not lawful for us to receive, neither to observe being Romans. And the multitude rose up together against them, and the magistrates rent off their clothes and commanded to beat them. And when they had laid stripes upon them, many stripes upon them, they cast them into the prison, charging the jailer to keep them safely, who, having received such a charge, thrust them into the inner prison and made their feet fast in the stocks. And at midnight, folks, God works at midnight. Now, I believe this midnight is probably the midnight hour that's being spoken of, but it could also pertain to the midnight of your crisis or of the situation of trouble that we're in. And at midnight, Paul and Silas prayed and sang praises unto God, and the prisoners heard them. And suddenly there was a great earthquake, so that the foundations of the prison were shaken, and immediately the, all, all the doors were opened and everyone's bands were loosed. And the keeper of the prison, awaking out of his sleep and seeing the prison doors open, he drew out his sword and would have killed himself, supposing that the prisoners had been, had been fled. 
But Paul cried with a loud voice, saying, Do thyself no harm, for we are all here. And he called for a light and sprang in and came trembling and falling and fell down before Paul and Silas and brought them out, saying, Sirs, what must I do to be saved? Isn't that an interesting thing for him to position for him to take after an earthquake? What does salvation have to do with an earthquake? Well, notice it says at midnight, Paul and Silas prayed and sang praises unto God. Now, folks, if that was you in there, what would you be praying about? I'd be praying, get me out of here. When they're singing praises to God, what are they praising God about? Are they praising God because they got beaten? Are they praising God because their back are bleeding? Are they praising God because they count it to be in his hands, count their situation to be in his hands? Are they praising God for deliverance while they're still in chains? That's the only thing that would make these guys, this jailer, think about it. Salvation. Sirs, what must I do to be saved? Well, they had an answer. They said, believe on the Lord Jesus Christ, and thou shalt be saved in thy house. And they spake unto him the word of the Lord and to all that were in his house. And he took them the same hour of the night and washed their stripes, and was baptized he and his, all his straightway. And when he had brought them unto his house, he set meat before them and rejoiced, believing in God with all of his house. There's no teaching against Jesus. There's no teaching against the, the delivering power of God. There's no uprooting of wrong doctrine concerning Jesus or concerning the power of God that has in any way to be done. Now we try to get some of the same results in people that have heard about Paul's thorn in the flesh and don't really know what to think about it. And we try to get the same results Get the same power to work with a, a, at the very least a lesser foundation of the word of God in our heart. Look with me in chapter 19. Verse 1. And it came to pass while Apollos was at Corinth Paul, having passed through the upper coast, came to Ephesus and finding certain disciples. Now, this is Asia. He was, Paul and Silas were forbidden to go into Asia before, but now they're going on God's direction. He found certain disciples, and he said unto them, Have you received the Holy Ghost since you believe? And they said unto him, We have not so much as heard whether there be any Holy Ghost. And he said unto them, Under what then are you baptized? And they said unto John's baptism. Then said Paul, John barely baptized with the baptism of repentance, saying unto the people that they should believe on him which should come after him, that is, on Jesus Christ. When they heard this, they were baptized in the name of the Lord Jesus. And when Paul had laid his hands upon them, the Holy Ghost came on them, 
and they spake with tongues and prophesied. And all the men were about twelve. And they went into the synagogue and spake boldly for the space of three months, disputing and persuading the things concerning the kingdom of God. Folks, here's this phrase, kingdom of God, again, that we see over and over again in the Gospels. We see that the, gospel, that the apostles were commissioned by Jesus to go before him into certain towns and prepare the way for them and to preach to them the gospel of the kingdom. It always bugged me when we see that the, the apostles during Jesus' ministry were given instructions to go and preach. But then we see them operating according to their own unbelief and the questions that they have. How would God have been able, how would Jesus have been able to trust that they would tell the people the truth, tell the people the, the accurate and valid things pertaining to God's special plan and purpose for their lives. We see that they're commissioned with power and authority over disease and, and evil spirits. But then they were told to go and preach the gospel. But the only thing that Jesus ever really told them to preach, and I'm ashamed that it took me so long to figure this out or understand this or recognize it, really. The only thing that they were ever commissioned to preach was the gospel of the kingdom. Now the only explanation or definition that we have of the, God, the kingdom of God is what Jesus said when he was giving the disciples what's known as the Lord's Prayer. It really wasn't the Lord's Prayer, it was the disciples' prayer. Our Father which art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come. Well, he's talking about the kingdom of God, isn't he? Thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. So the kingdom of God means the will of God to be done in your life here on the earth just like it will be done in heaven. And that makes sense because God doesn't change whether you're here or you're there. So when he starts talking about when the Bible tells us about preaching or teaching the kingdom of God, the disciples were sent to tell the people, to preach to the people, that God's will for them here on the earth in this life is the same as his will for them in the, when they get to heaven. And he went into the synagogue and spoke boldly for the space of three months, disputing and persuading the things concerning the kingdom of God. Let me rephrase this or substitute a different way to say this. He went into the synagogue and spake boldly for the space of three months, disputing pertaining and persuading the things concerning the will of God for your life. That would fit, wouldn't it? But when divers were hardened and believed not, but spake evil of that way before the multitude, 
he departed from them and separated the disciples, disputing daily in the school of one Tyrannus. And this continued by the space of two years, so that all they which dwelt in Asia heard the word of the Lord Jesus, both Jews and Greeks. See, when they were there in the right time, God used their ministry in Ephesus to reach all of Asia. And God wrought special miracles by the hands of Paul, so that from his body were brought unto the sick handkerchiefs or aprons, and the diseases departed from them, and the evil spirits went out of them. Now notice in the preceding verses, verse 9 and 10, for example, they were disputing in the school of Tyrannus, started off in the synagogue, but then moved to right next door to where they were in the school of Tyrannus. This is most often considered to be a medical school. So this Tyrannus must have been a believer, and he made the school, the gathering place for the school available. So it says that Paul was disputing daily. He was persuading or trying to persuade people concerning the things of God, the kingdom of God. But he's not having to fight against religion. He's not having to fight against wrong doctrines or wrong ideas or wrong perceptions concerning the will of God for their lives. He's disputing that God is a greater power than false gods and idols that they're worshiping. So the special miracles by the hands of Paul take place to confirm the word that Paul is preaching to them and the, the greatness of the power of God that's available to us. And it tells us about the sons of Siva. God wrought special miracles by the hands of Paul so that from his body were brought into sick handkerchiefs or aprons and the diseases departed from them and the evil spirits went out of them. Well, that pretty much makes his case when he's disputing in the school of Tyrannus, doesn't it? He's identifying God in the name of Jesus as the greater power. So much so that this power travels independently and, and separately from the presence of Paul himself. First time we have any record of handkerchiefs or aprons or things like that carrying the power of God. Now we see a semblance of that in the uh, garment that Jesus wore. You remember when the woman with the issue of blood in Mark chapter 5 said, if I can just touch his clothes, I shall be whole. She reaches out and touches the garment that Jesus was wearing and the power of God transferred from him to her and affected the healing and the cure in her body from the top of her head to the soles of her feet. And this issue of blood ceased as soon as she made contact. So we see in a measure that take place with Jesus, but we, even in Jesus' ministry, we don't see him sending forth any apron or cloth or handkerchief or rag or whatever that contained the power of God, the healing power of God or the delivering power of God. Well, it tells us other miracle things that took place. Then certain of the vagabond Jews, exorcists, 
took upon them to call over them which had evil spirits the name of the Lord Jesus, saying, We adjure you by Jesus, whom Paul preaches. And there were seven sons of one Seba, a Jew and a chief of the priests, which did so. And the evil spirit answered and said, Jesus I know, and Paul I know. Who are you? And the man in whom the evil spirit was, was leaped on them and overcame them and prevailed against them, so that they fled out of that house naked and wounded. And this was known to all the Greek Jews and the Greeks also dwelling at Ephesus, and fear f fell on them all, and the name of the Lord Jesus was magnified. And many that believed came and confessed and showed their deeds. Many of them also, which used curious arts, brought their books together and burned them all before all men. And they counted the price of them and found it 50,000 pieces of silver. So mightily grew the word of God and prevailed. Folks, let me ask you a question. Why are these Christians holding on to these occult books and art and whatever else is involved in this? What kind of Christian life are they living in spite of the miracles and the signs and wonders and the things that have been done by God on, through the hands of Paul? What are these Christians doing with all this stuff? They certainly haven't made a total commitment to God, have they? But once they get rid of these things, once they let the word of God and the power of God and their relationship with God take the prior, priority position in their lives, so mightily grew the word of God and prevailed. See, the word doesn't prevail in some people's lives because they're not committed to it and sold out. Some people are living like the people in Ephesus, where Christianity is just one of the things that makes up part of their life. If we want God's best, we're going to have to give him ours. And some people will hear that and say, well, now you sound like you're talking about works. Well, I think there comes a point in time in our lives where we do recognize the importance of our Christian works. It's not what earns us salvation. It's not what earns us the healing power of God or any of the blessings of God. But if we live long enough, we come to the place sometime where our lives match up with what we say we believe. Here again is the, is the results of Paul going to the first or being the first to get to, to cities and people that haven't been taught against the things of God, that haven't been taught against the healing power of God. That takes us back to where we started in Isaiah chapter 53. Verse 4, surely he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows. Surely he has borne our griefs, our sicknesses, and carried our sorrows. Why in the world would the, would the translators choose to translate sickness as grief rather than to, to, to translate it as they have 
other places where the word is used. It says to me that there, by the time the King James translation was completed, the church was deeply steeped in confusion and unbelief concerning God and his healing power. A translation is a good translation, or any translation, I guess, is dependent on two things the translator's knowledge of the language. Hebrew for the Old Testament and Greek for the New Testament. And the translator's understanding of the characteristics of God. The translators come up on Isaiah 53, 4. Surely he has borne our sickness and carried our pains. Which is what it should literally be translated as. And for whatever reason, they choose to stick with the word grief or the word translated into grief rather than sickness. Now why would they do that if they didn't already have their mind made up about what the word says? It says to me that by the time of the King James translation, the church is drowning in unbelief based on their own thinking and their own perception. Just in the same way that Nazareth, the people of Nazareth, said Jesus can't be the Messiah because we know his parents. What they thought they knew robbed them of the things of God. Jesus went to Nazareth to do the same healings and miracles and works that he did in Capernaum, which they were already aware of. Bible says my people perish for a lack of knowledge you know that could be understood to be some uh, to, to say it in a different way my people perish for what they think they know my people perish because their knowledge robs them of the blessings of God Look within 2 Corinthians chapter 3. No, that's not right. 2 Corinthians chapter 10, verse 3. For though we walk in the flesh, we do not war after the flesh. For the weapons of our warfare are not carnal, but mighty through God to the pulling down of strongholds. This stronghold is a defensive position. For the weapons of our warfare are not carnal or earthly or natural, but mighty through God to the pulling down of strongholds. What strongholds is he talking about? What is he talking about how that our weapons are to be trained on or aimed at, if you will, these strongholds? How do you do that? Verse 5, casting down imaginations, and every high thing that exalts itself against the knowledge of God and bringing into captivity every thought to the obedience of Christ. Jesus said in one place 
where he was questioned by the Pharisees. They saw that Jesus' disciples didn't wash their hands according to the ritual washing experience that the, that the Jews had developed from the word of, from the law of Moses. So Jesus answers them and says, don't you know it's not the things that go into a man that defiles him, but the things which come out of the man. He's talking about the operation of the, the spirit within. He's saying as the inward man expresses himself through words and speaks the words, those are the things that can defile him. But then he went further and he said to the, to the, the Jews, you've taken the law of Moses, for example, which says, honor your father and mother. And you've developed this system of buying off your parents. Providing a gift to your parents. And they accepted that or thought that would, ex ex uh, would take them out from under the, the commandment to honor your father and mother. And Jesus went on to say, you've made your, by your traditions... You've made the word of none effect. Now, folks, the Bible, the, the word of God is the most powerful thing in the universe. It's what the universe was made by. How is it that the frailty of man can undo or prohibit the power of God from working. Jesus went on to say, many other such things have you done. So we see in, the, in Jesus' ministry, his time here on the earth, that the wrong thinking of the Pharisees have robbed them of what God made available to them through the law of Moses and to the prophecies that spoke to Jesus appearing. In the same way here it says our, our weapons, the weapons of our warfare, are spiritual weapons, not earthly weapons, but spiritual weapons. And that the spiritual weapons that we have can remove these strongholds, these defensive positions that Satan has set up in our lives. Now folks, I've got to tell you, Paul's thorn in the flesh is one of the greatest strongholds there is. This uncertainty that some people are willing to accept and hold on to about whether or not God wants people to be well or he wants them to suffer with sickness. That's a stronghold. These mental blocks are the things that we have to take stock of and identify and find the answers for if we're ever going to walk in the power, the power or the blessings of the Lord. 
casting down imaginations. This word imagination means reasonings. One translation translates preconceived ideas. We mentioned earlier the parable that Jesus gave about the sower sowing the word in Mark chapter 4. Wrong thinking, reasonings, preconsidered ideas, preconceived ideas. Are what turns some of the ground into wayside. Here's the power of God, which clearly says that Jesus took our sicknesses and bare our, our pains. That must have been a stronghold in their lives. That must have been a situation that they had things figured out that calls into question whether or not God wants us to be healed. For the weapons of our warfare are not carnal, but they are mighty through God to the pulling down of strongholds, casting down imaginations, and every high thing, every high thing. What's he talking about high things? He's talking about the things we've exalted to a place of priority in our lives. Much of the church is exalted are allowed the high, the high thing of Paul's thorn in the flesh, ideas about Paul's thorn in the flesh, or God's will concerning healing, to create and to develop and to maintain a stronghold that keeps them out of the things of God. Now, folks, I don't know what your strongholds are. You don't know what mine are. But we both have an equal responsibility to identify those things and to replace the knowledge or the idea or the thinking or the doctrine that we had before with the truth of the word. And it's only by doing that that we can walk in the fullness of God's power and plan and purpose here on the earth. Casting down imaginations and every high thing that exalts itself against the knowledge of God and bringing into captivity every thought to the obedience of Christ. We are instructed to take hold of every thought that comes to our mind, examine it by the word, change the thinking that doesn't line up with the word and exalt the, th the truth of God's word that we do hold fast to. Casting down imaginations. Same thing Paul's talking about when he speaks of renewing the mind in Romans chapter 12. Verse 2, be not conformed to this world, but be ye transformed by the renewing of the mind. This casting down imaginations will transform your life. It will transform your life and will bring you to the place that Paul calls the renewing of the mind. To renew our mind, to renew our thinking, to renew our thoughts, to the truth of God's word and nothing else. Bringing into obedience every thought. Subject every thought to the obedience of Christ or the obedience of his word.
He sent his word and healed us. That's why our thoughts have to line up with the word. So that the word can have free course and reign. And manifest the power of God in our bodies. Casting down. Imaginations. Reasonings. Preconceived ideas. Tradition. Unbelief. Casting down imaginations and every high thing that exalts itself against the knowledge of God and bringing into captivity every thought to the obedience of Christ. You know, one of the things, one of the criticisms that people claim against us is they say those word of faith people, they're so arrogant. They're so arrogant to think that they can order God around like God becomes their cosmic bellhop. I remember that reading that somewhere. I don't know what that's supposed to be. They're so proud that it's been, it's been said. Do you know what pride really is? Pride is exalting something contrary to the word instead of the word itself. The ultimate arrogance is not in claiming the truth of God's word as your source and the foundation for your life, but to question the word because of some thinking or some doctrine that you hold fast to instead. Jesus said, whatever we ask in his name, he'll do it. He said, if you abide in me and my word abides in you, you shall ask what you will, and it shall be done. The most humbling thing that we can do is to act on the truth of God's word. Not because of who we are, but because of whose we are. That's what the Bible calls humility. Humble yourself before the mighty hand of God. What does that mean? It means do what the word says instead of what you think. Casting down imaginations. And every high thing that exalts itself against the knowledge of God. And bringing every thought into captivity to the obedience of Christ. Let's pray. Father, we bless you. We worship your holy name. We thank you, Father, that healing is ours because Jesus took our infirmities and bare our sicknesses, and with his stripes we are healed. We thank you, Father, that provision is ours because the chastisement of our peace was upon Jesus. We thank you, Father, for the privilege to renew our mind to the truth of your word. We're not ashamed of the gospel of Christ, Lord. 
For it is the power of God unto salvation. It's the power of God that rescues us. It's the power of God that makes us safe. It's the power of God that delivers us. It's the power of God that makes us sound. It's the power of God that heals us. Blessed be your holy name. Open our eyes, Lord. Open our eyes to see those things which we need to expose to the word. Those strongholds that have been built up in our own lives that perhaps we don't even see or know. Open our eyes to the truth, Lord. Show us what steps we need to take to renew our minds to the truth that we can walk in the fullness of your plan and your purpose for our lives. In Jesus' precious name, amen. Amen. Let's all stand. Say it with me. The Lord is good. And his mercy endures forever. Amen. God bless you folks. Have a great day.